Thank you very much, Elena and the team. Good morning. We're in Colossians. This is the last message in Colossians. We're in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. If you need a Bible, please raise your hands and the ushers will bring you one. If you don't own a Bible, please keep it. Also, if you would pull out the, the notes in your bulletin and um, follow along in the message, please. Oh, how you doing? This is, this is great. You know what's funny is I, I got to sit there and um, the worship, I didn't do announcements, so I didn't screw them up. I got to shake people's hands, not worry about the announcement. This has been a wonderful time as Brandon and I are, are kind of co-pastoring this church. And, and not to give Brandon a big head because it's already too big. Um, Brandon is a great leader. I'm deeply impressed with his leadership. So I'm, I'm very pleased knowing that my time is, is coming to an end here, but God has brought him to us. So Brandon, we're excited for you. We're excited for us because of you. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Today I've titled this message, Pastor Paul's Closing Remarks. We tend to look at Paul as an apostle, and he was. But Paul also had a pastor's heart. A pastor being someone who shepherds God's people, who, who see them as lambs, as sheep that need to be guided and protected. That's what Paul's heart was. Colossians showed that to us in chapter 1, verse 27 through 28, how Paul mentioned there that, that he prays and he works incessantly with all the power God gives him to see them grow to maturity, to stand before Christ fully mature. That's what a pastor does. And so, so I titled this Pastor Paul's Closing Remarks. First thing I want to do, though, is review Colossians. So the first third of this message will be reviewing Colossians. Since this is the last message, we've spent, um, I don't know how many months. Early fall, I think we started this. And so we probably spent five months. We took a month off from Thanksgiving through Christmas. Um, and it's been one of those, one of those um, I didn't know how much I would grow from preaching Colossians. This is an incredible book that, you know, when you pray about it and ask, what's next for this church, Lord? And, and not that I received a revelation, but the sense of, of what Paul says in Colossians, we need in this church, I need in my life. Um, now at the last sermon, I'm thrilled with what God has taught us through this. So let's go ahead and jump into this review. The first thing is the change of kingdoms. I want to read to you chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. And we'll see here how you, because of Jesus Christ, and you put your trust in him, he's changed your family, he's changed your kingdom. Look, look at this, verses one, verses, chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. So Paul, and so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Watch, I'm going to read slow. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord... Fully pleasing to him. You, you grasp the ability God has given you to live a life fully pleasing to God. That's incredible. Being, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Here it is. Now, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. You didn't qualify yourself. He qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. How do you do that? Verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness 
and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's been a kingdom shift in your life from the domain of darkness where Satan rules to the kingdom of his beloved son, the domain of light, the kingdom of light. We were in darkness, now we're in light. We once were under the authority of Satan and it's been taken away. The songs we just sang, Satan has no more authority over us. Death has no more fear over us. It doesn't control us. Why? Because we belong to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of his beloved son. In this, we have a new life. The old is past. It's a new life. We have a new master who's good and kind and patient with us. That's Jesus Christ. We have a new family called the people of God. And we have a new power because the Holy Spirit resides in us. To live this life of bearing fruit in every good work and live in a life that is entirely pleasing to God. This has been accomplished because of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So Paul opens up with this prayer, and typical of Paul, it's, it's one, one verse about eight, nine, it's one sentence in Greek, eight or nine, ten verses. Paul loves to learn on sentences. He'd, he'd fail English today. But he does all that to set us up for the fact that we have all of this, this new life, this new kingdom, this new family, this new power, because of who Jesus is, the supremacy of Christ, and what he's done for us, the all-sufficiency of his ministry. So let's look at that now. First, the supremacy of the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read to you 15 to 19, chapter 1, 15 to 19, and look how it defines Jesus, all the categories of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, which is Paul's fancy way of saying entirely God and entirely human. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we've seen here everything's created by him, through him, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he created everything. He's the ruler of it, and it all holds together. I, did a, I loved when I did that sermon because this idea of our universe, you know, atomically speaking, should not be holding together. But Christ holds all things together. He, not only cre- he didn't create it and walk away. He created it and he sustains it. And he is the head of the body, that is the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's why I call this the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. He's preeminent. Why? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, let's stop there. So that, that's, that's the supremacy of the person of Christ. And, and that, if you want to go back, go back to the message I did on that back, I don't know when that was, September-ish, and, and bask in the truths of this incredible Savior we have who is in glory for eternity as God, the Son of God. And because of our helplessness, our hopelessness, our rebellion, he enters our world as a human being to redeem us. God became man, the supremacy of our Savior, to accomplish our salvation, which is the next point, the all-sufficiency of Christ's work. Let's read 20 to 23 now. 
We stopped in the middle of a sentence there about all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. He created all things. He sustains them all. And now he's reconciling everything to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And the peace here is the idea that in our sin, we are enemies of God. Romans 5 tells us that specifically. We are enemies of God, but God deeply loves us. But there's this barrier that we can't cross to create a peace treaty with God. So that barrier is filled by the cross. The cross created the peace. We're no longer enemies of God. We're his children. And someone say amen. Amen. Louder. All right. Verse 21, and you, once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach for him. That's his end goal for you. He made you his child, and in the end, he's going to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So those foundational truths in chapter 1, I just read to you chapter 1, verse 9 through chapter 1, verse 23, is really the foundation of the whole book. And pretty much he just repeats these themes throughout. What we learn because of these things, because the change of kingdoms and family, because of the supremacy of Christ, because of the all-sufficiency of his work on the cross, you are now called to live a new life, not the old one. You you have died with Christ, chapter 2, verse 20 says. So if we've died with him, why do we still submit to the the principles of the world that are against him? So Paul says in 2.20. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, you've been raised with Christ. Remember, we talked a lot about this, this um, union with Christ. When he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was raised, you were raised. Ephesians adds to that. When he ascended to the right hand of God, that's where you sit with him in some great, mysterious, but real way right now. We are at the right hand of, the, of God with Jesus Christ. So we've, been, we've died, we've been raised with him. Now, he tells us seek things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He tells us to set our minds on things above. That's an intentional focus on, meditate on things above. And we'll learn what those things above are in a moment. But then he, first, though, he says to put to death what is earthly in you. And he goes through that list, a list of, of, of immoral behavior and, and thievery and idolatry and foul language and abusive language to each other. All these things that were part of who we were when we were owned by Satan, when we were in the old kingdom. He says, get rid of these things. Seek things above. Put off the old person that you were in Adam. Put on the new person that's being renewed to the image of Christ. And he concludes that section in chapter 3, verse 12, which this is what defines things above. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's us. Isn't that cool? God's identity that he's given you, how he sees you, he's chose you, and he says, you're my holy ones, you're my beloved ones. Put on then compassion, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility. These are things above we're to seek, we're to, 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 to put to death the opposite and seek these things out. Humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so that you also must forgive. 
It's not optional. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It goes on. So for me, that encapsulates the book of Colossians. That we were dead, alienated, strangers to the promises of God. And because of Jesus Christ and the supremacy of who he is, became human, died on the cross for us, was raised to bring a more than sufficient salvation to give us a new life. Not just forgiveness, but an entire new life. That's Colossians. Now I want to have Bible stuff. I want to talk about it. But we can't. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to shift now to the last paragraph. Chapter 4, verse 7 through 18. And these are Pastor Paul's closing remarks. Now, Paul has traveled with many people throughout his missionary years. At this current time, he's in jail. And it appears a couple of his co-workers are in jail with him. In this passage here, he mentions 10 different people. Most of them are people with him traveling or people he has sent to the city of Coloss to tell them what's happening. Sometimes he mentions a few people in Coloss. Two of his traveling companions wrote gospels. Mark is with him. He wrote the gospel of Mark. Luke is with him. He wrote the gospel of Luke. And what we see here is Paul's pastoral heart for the people who are with him traveling and for the people in Coloss whom he can't go be with because he's in jail. So I'm going to read to you the whole section, 7 through 18. There are no slides. Just listen or follow along in your Bibles. And there's a lot of names in here. However I say it is the way you have to say it, okay? (laughs) Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, the we, because there's a couple people with Paul in jail, and that we may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. By the way, Jesus in, in Hebrew is Iesus, a very, very common, that's, that's Greek, Iesus or Yeshua is the Hebrew name. Very common name. So it's, it's like today, Jesus in Spanish. Very common name in Greek, very common name in Hebrew. So there's this person named Jesus who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. They have been a comfort to me. These are the only Jewish travelers that are traveling. All the other travelers are Gentiles. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis, which are three cities in, in the Lycus Valley that, that were very closely related. Brandon's been there, talked to him. He's got a great story about the, that, that area. Where did I land? Thank you. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, to Nympha and the church in her house. House churches, they didn't have buildings. So Nympha obviously had a big enough house to have a gathering. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans. 
and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. When you come to an end of a book like this, and Romans has the same thing. Romans mentions about 20 people at the end of the book. How do you preach through it? And as I was reading through this, I saw three, I'll call them pastoral concerns of Paul. As he's finishing, or as rather, <laughs> we're finishing his letter, but as he's in jail, he wants the people in Coloss to walk with the Lord. That's what the whole letter's been about. And now he's going to bring three things that I've pulled out of here that apply to us today. The first one is Paul recognizes faithfulness. Paul recognizes faithfulness. I'm going to read 7 through 9 again. These will be on the slides. Colossians 4, 7 through 9. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. Now look how he's described. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Beloved brother, faithful minister, a faithful um, Faithful minister and fellow servant, or the word servant is the word slave. Paul loves that word to refer to himself. I'm a slave of the gospel. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. But I want to focus on that word faithful minister. Let's read about Onesimus now. Oh, no, verse 8. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, I'm sending Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. Same words. Who is one of you? They will tell you of everything that has taken place. So Paul recognizes these two workers with the Lord as faithful, faithful people. And so I want, I want to think, okay, as I leave this, how would you describe me? I'm, I'm not asking you to answer that. How would I describe you? How, how would other people describe you? And I wonder how much we should take from this, this virtue, this Christ-like characteristic that we are known as faithful. Multiple times this word faithful is used by Paul. About half the time he uses it, the Lord is faithful. God is faithful. So it's a characteristic of who God is. And according to Colossians, we are being renewed into the image of the one who created us. And that's Christ. So could we be described as faithful? So what does faithful mean? Two synonyms. And actually, the word faithful comes from the Greek word. It's actually the word pistos. It comes from the word pistua, which means I believe, I trust, I, 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 I put my faith in Jesus Christ. This is the adjective that describes a trustworthy person, a dependable person. So, so when, you, when you have trust in Jesus, you're depending upon him. That verb that you do to get saved now becomes a lifestyle that characterizes my life. I am a trustworthy person and I am a dependable person among the people of God, among my family members, among the community I live in. Tychicus and Onesimus are both described this way. Tychicus is described, mentioned four other times in Paul's letter. He's regularly used by Paul, travels with Paul, and Paul says, here, take this letter to Ephesus, take this letter to Coloss. And, and so Tychicus is faithful. Paul knows in all the journeys of the ancient world, the dangers, the, the, the difficulties, I can trust Tychicus. He'll get it done. It's really interesting that Onesimus is called faithful because if we went to the book of Philemon, the very next book, the very next page, we learn that, Phile excuse me, we learn that Onesimus 
is a runaway slave from his master Philemon. And Paul has met him while he's in jail and led him to the Lord. And now Onesimus has been serving with Paul, and Paul's describing him as faithful and sends him back to his master, Philemon. And Onesimus' name means useless. Excuse me, useful. So, so, so Paul does a play on words in the book of Philemon and says, he was once useless to you, now he's useful to you because he's lived the life of Christ as he's ministered to me. So these are descriptions Paul has for Tychicus and Onesimus as faithful, dependable, reliable, trustworthy people. And since this is the characteristic of God, that's what he's calling us to be. Do you want to be, we've talked about this several times in the last couple of months, do you want to be that sharp instrument in the hand of God as he redeems the world? That wasn't rhetorical. Do you want to be a sharp instrument in the hands of God as he used you in this fallen world? We all do. In fact, there's a passage in, um, not Revelation, um, Matthew 25, there's a parable of the talents where God gives, the imagery there is a king, a master gives his servants talents, money. Gives one ten, one five, one one. And they go out into the world and they, they invest it, at least the one ten and five do. And when they come back, when the master comes back and says, tell me how you did. The one who had invested 10 or given 10, he, he doubled it. It was 20. The one who had five doubled it. It was, it was 10. The one who won buried it in the ground, did nothing with it. And God says, or Christ says to the first one, well done, good and servant. You've done well with little. I'm going to put you in charge of much. He says to the one that had five, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been done well with little. I'm going to put you in charge with much. He says to the one that had one, you lazy servant. I can't depend on you. Out you go. It's a disturbing passage. But here's what I want to hear. I want to hear God say, I gave you little, but you did much with it. Well done, good and faithful servant. And I hope that's what you want to hear also. I, I want to be someone that God says, I can depend on Tony to do this job. So I'm going to call on him to do it. That's what it, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1.12. This is what he says. Listen, I thank God who has given me strength. Excuse me. I thank him who has given me strength. Jesus Christ our Lord. Why does he thank him? Because... He judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. You see, Paul's attribute of faithfulness in his life, God says, I'm going to use you. Because this thing of faithfulness in you, which is, comes from me, you've exhibited it, Paul. Now I've got a lot for you to do. So if we want to be instruments in God's hands... Are we people who are trustworthy? Are we the people who are dependable? Do we keep our word when we give it? The opposite of faithfulness. Give me, give me some opposites of faithfulness. What's the, if you're not faithful, you are. What's the opposite? Unfaithful, did you say? Faithless, okay. I did this in my rooted group the other night. I said, what's the opposite of faithful? Someone said unfaithful. I said, that's not helpful. 
So, what'd you say, Daryl? Okay, so, so other opposites. Selfish, absolutely. Skeptical. Oh, skeptical. Oh, that's an interesting one, Joe. I have to think through that. That God is leading me, but I, are you really talking to me, God? I don't think you. I think I'll just sit here and wait till I get a, a, a lightning bolt or something before I act on it. Um, the word flaky comes to mind. How many times have we said, yeah, count on me, I'll serve, and we don't show up? Let's not be those people. Let's be people who say, I'm going to give you my word, I'm going to serve here, do this, do that, and I show up and do it. Let's not be inconsistent. But I've put here in bold words in my notes, selfish. I would say selfish is a, a great synonym for the word sin and a good synonym or an antonym to the word faithful. So, I think others are a better judge of whether you're faithful or not. All day long, I can say, I'm faithful. But really, you know if I'm faithful or not. Because have I been dependable in your life? So those around you, those who know you well, they're the ones that would describe it. It's like, it's like being at a, 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 a memorial service where someone gives a eulogy. And you know the guy was a jerk. And then people stand up there and say, oh, he was an angel. And you're going, no, he wasn't. That's what we say at a, a funeral. You talk good about the dead. But now that we're alive, <laughs> let's live that life so when that day comes and you talk at my funeral, you say it, people are going to go, that was Tony. I'll put your name in there. Let's now move to the next section of Paul's pastoral concern, and that's Paul's emphasis in prayer. And it might not be what you think, what Paul emphasizes. I'm going to read to you verses 12 to 13. Read from my here because I underlined some things. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Look at this. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. That you may stand mature. He struggles. The idea of struggling there, it comes from the word, Greek word agonizo. And we get our word agonize. It's, it's a, a compound of this word is what Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he came to the disciples, he says, I'm full of agony right now. It's an intense, deep, emotional emotion. I, I lost my adjectives and adverbs there. That drives you to do something. He struggled, he agonized, he wrestled is another translation. On your behalf, so that you would stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. I wonder, Joe and I were talking about this earlier today, and also um, a rooted group. We had our rooted, if, if you're in rooted, you know what I'm talking about, if you're not in rooted, week three of the rooted discipleship program is called prayer and fasting. Everyone in the, in the program, about 50 of us, we fasted for 24 hours. Then we got together and had a prayer time of about 90 minutes to two hours. Then we broke fast with a meal. And, and we were talking about this, this idea of praying for one another. And I want you to get this imagery. Think, think of um, um, two levels of prayer. Think of an overarching prayer concern. And then think of a, uh, underneath that the daily concerns of life. 
of, of which in, that, in the daily concerns of life is, you know, I, I want a new job, or I need a job, I'm, I'm, I'm unemployed, or I'm sick, I need help, or, you know, my, my, I'm at odds with my brother, would someone pray for me? These are the daily concerns of life that we should always bring to the Lord. But I wonder, as we pray for one another, if this is where we spend all of our time. And the overarching prayer that Paul brings to us, because Paul prays the exact same things for the Colossians in chapter 1. Verses 9 through 11. I'll read that again in a minute. I wonder if we spent our time praying this prayer here that says, oops, let me get my notes here. We struggle on each other's behalf in prayer that I'm praying for you, you're praying for me, that, that you would stand mature, fully assured of the will of God. You see, that prayer is this overarching prayer that gives us a perspective, the maturity that comes with that, which is what Colossians is about, growing to maturity, and understanding the will of God, which is not so much, you know, where are you going to work, who are you going to marry, what school are you going to go to? That's not that will of God. It's the gospel, understanding fully what God has done for you and who you are, which then drives my life to help me deal with the daily pressures of life. Sometimes I wonder if, because we don't understand the big picture, the overarching truths that was part of Epaphras' prayers, we struggle down here dealing with our daily concerns. I'm all for praying for each other's healings. But quite often, when we do prayer requests, we see constantly, pray for me or my uncle or my aunt or my sister that they're sick and need healing. James tells us to take these to the Lord. But wonder if we prayed up here, I'll pray for you that everything that's going on in your life drives you to Jesus. And by driving you to Jesus, you grab a hold of him. You understand who he is, what he's done for you on the cross, and what he's done for you by raising you from the dead and giving you the Holy Spirit. Now the power you have in this new life you're living and understand, now I can understand more. Why do I have cancer? I don't pray, God, why do I have cancer? Why are you doing this to me? My genuine prayer, and this isn't, this isn't piety or anything else. My genuine prayer, Lord, is, is I want to be conformed to your image more than anything else in my life. And this is something I have worked on in my mind, in my heart for decades. I want more than anything in my life to be like Jesus Christ. And God, what's it going to take to get me there? Do it. Now, I'm not going to say God gave me cancer, but without a doubt, I've used this imagery before. If he's sovereign over the world and sovereign over my life, I'm in his hand. And nothing can come into my life that doesn't first go through his fingers. And when he says, you know what, Tony, I'm going to bring your prostate cancer back because I got some things to, to teach you. I got some things I want you to learn. I want you to understand what it means to live in a fallen world. I want you to understand what it means to depend upon me. Then, Lord, I don't like this. I hate this therapy I'm on, which is minor compared to many of you, the therapies you've been on for your cancer. But God, I fully accept it if it's bringing me closer to you, understanding, growing in the knowledge of God. Let me, let me read you Paul's prayer at the beginning. This is what he prayed. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, Colossians, asking to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, the knowledge of God, there isn't just information, it's a relationship. 
As all these things happen, it drives me closer to him and I get to know him better in a relationship, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I can endure whatever God throws at me if I grasp who he is, what he's done in my life, and that I need to hold on to him and never let go because he has a plan for me. He has a plan for you. And that someday you'll stand before him holy and blameless, just like Jesus Christ. And that wasn't because he snapped his finger in a moment in time and did that. That's because he took you through the ringer, through your whole life, to develop Christ-like characteristics in you. And when we're constantly saying, take these away, take these away, what we're asking him to do is take away that which is his instrument to mature us. Does that make sense? It's exactly what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It says he had a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan there to buffet him, to torture him. And it was most likely a physical problem, most commentators think. Paul is physically ill. And I'll suggest to you in a moment what it is. I'll tell you now. Paul had bad eyes. Paul couldn't see well. He told the Galatians that when I was with you, you, you so loved me, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. A couple times Paul says, see what large letters I sign my name on this letter. Because he couldn't see well. God's saying, Paul's saying, take it away. I need my eyesight perfect. And what's God say? No. No. Because when you're weak, then you're strong. When you're weak, you depend upon me, Paul, and you become strong. My grace is sufficient for you. And grace, by the way, isn't just an attitude of God towards you. I mentioned this before. Grace is God's power towards you to live the life he's called us to live. So... So I want you to think about that. What is our prayer life for one another like? I, I mean, let's not stop praying, God, deliver this person from their physical ailments. Deliver them from the struggles they have in life. Deliver them from the, from, like my wife, I shouldn't say too much. She's working today, Super Bowl. Oh, I wasn't going to say Super Bowl. The whole sermon, I wasn't going to say it. I failed. Um, she'd rather be here. She's tired of doing what her job wants her to do. She wants to be with the people of God. But what's God doing in her life? I, I could pray, God, give her a new job. Give her better hours. Or whether I should pray, rather say, God, work in Teresa your heart. Work in Teresa your characteristic. Work in her as she doesn't like being at her job to be a witness at her job. Of, of Christ-likeness. That's what I should pray for her, not simply give her a new job. You see, if we have all our problems down here solved but don't grow in Christ, it's, that, that's not God's purposes. I, I'm talking too much. So the last one is Paul's encouragement to finish your ministry. Pastor Paul's encouragement to finish your ministry. Look at 417. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, we wish we had more. Since he's calling out one person among the whole church, there's probably something that Archippus had received from the Lord, a specific task, a specific ministry that he was avoiding. Wasn't being faithful. And Paul, knowing this, says, hey, listen, leaders of the church, let Archippus know God's got a calling on your life, something very specific. Fulfill the ministry you've been called to do. So that's my assumption, um, as opposed to we all, have, well, this is how I'm going to apply it, though. We've all been given spiritual gifts. It, with this new identity as a child of God, as a kingdom of light, we've all been given capacities, passions and abilities, spiritual gifts 
to serve one another. Every one of us have. No exceptions. So the purpose of our life has changed. The purpose of my life is supposed to be, God, how can you use me to bless your people? How can you use me to let someone outside the people of God know about Jesus and serve them? So we all have a ministry. Maybe Archippus had received this specific thing, and maybe a lot of us have been received specific things from God we haven't fulfilled. I want us to give thought to that idea, the general idea of every one of us are supposed to be ministers of the gospel of grace. We're all supposed to be servants, slaves of God to do what... What is this? A slave obeys his master. So if we're slaves of Jesus Christ, is what Paul says he is, then we are to obey him, and he calls us to be ministers. This isn't about a guilt trip to you. This is about encouragement. Maybe an admonition. Sometimes admonition is a, is a little bit above guilt trip. It's more, you know, it's kind of a, you know, come on, dude, get moving. Practically speaking, this church has a lot of needs that everyone in this room could be a part in fulfilling it. In ministry, we, we have um, great needs of people who want to go teach and love and shepherd our children and our youth. But currently, right now, it's very difficult for Jessica to get people to step up. This happened at Grace Church once. No one would step up to do children's ministry. And we, um, so one Sunday, we, we did a, a little ploy. You know, I'm not sure it was a smart thing to do, but we did it. The worship pastor led the worship. Then when the worship was over, he goes, okay, you're all dismissed. There's no, no pastors to preach because they're all downstairs taking care of the children. And the church was dismissed. We had four services, all four services. The next week, we had 60 people sign up for children's ministry. But, but guilt only motivates for a short time. But godly motivation, that you're reminded who you are, you've been gifted, you've been called. And we have great needs in things like that. Our ushers, every, every area of our ministry has a need that you have been gifted to fill. And so I don't know what my spiritual gift is. I don't know where I belong. Then I use my old adage. I don't know where I got it, but I've been saying it for 40 years. God does not steer a parked car. You got to get moving, then you can steer it. You get the imagery? So I encourage you, pray to God, God, where, where do I fit? And I'm going to go try that. I'm going to try that and see if all of a sudden you've given me the passion to be there. I'd ask for your prayers, and I'll end on this. I'll ask for your prayers about this very thing for Teresa and I. I am, you guys know that middle of April, the transition time that Brandon and I are doing, that I, I will, he's becoming greater, I'm becoming lesser. And then I, I'd say I'd ride off into the sunset, but the sunset's California, so I'm, I'll, I'll ride east. <laughs> um, and Teresa and I are asking what's next. So I'd like to tell you, just quickly here, um, Teresa and I are gonna, going to do this. Been a minister for 29 years, vocationally. And, and, and some things about the last couple of years knocked me down, discouraged me. COVID discouraged me, did all of us. But it discouraged me about the people of God. Because I saw 
I asked myself, what kind of disciples have I helped make here? I saw us hit this time where so many people are fearful of dying in our world, a, a country that's never faced anything like this before, a generation that's never faced anything like this before, an opportunity the church had to be ministers of hope. And it seemed to me we spent more time fighting over masks and vaccinations. And it really discouraged me. I remember back in December of 2020, I went to the elders and said, let's find my replacement because I am not doing this anymore. Um, I got past that. I don't stay discouraged. That's not who I am. But so the question is, what's next? I don't believe in retirement in the sense of you've amassed wealth, which I haven't. Now take time off and play. That's God's reward. That's nowhere in scripture. Enjoy your life. You live in a beautiful place. Enjoy your life. But God didn't bless you financially for the purpose of playing. He blessed you so you would be a blessing. And so having said that, this may sound contradictory. Teresa and I are asking the question, what's next for us? So what we're going to do is we're going to take one year, kind of a, like when your children graduate high school and they take a gap year before college. Teresa and I are going to take a gap year from, not from life, but from, from vocational ministry. And we're going to move to Southern Europe. We don't have the full resources not to work, but living in Southern Europe costs half what it costs here. We have the resources for that as we step back and say, God, show us what's next as we enjoy some of God's world, learn new cultures, look for opportunities to serve. I want to see what the, 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 the churches over there do. And um, then when we come back in a year, it's going to be, okay, God, what's next for us? So that sounds like I'm not taking my own advice that God didn't, I'm going to go play for a year. I'll be honest with you, I'm so looking forward to it. <laughs> and, and Teresa always does this. Teresa's the godly one. She says, if the Lord wills, we're going to do this, Tony. I'm a little more sarcastic, as you know. <laughs> I say, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. But if God honors it, that's what we're going to do. I pray for you, ask you to pray for us that we don't forget this. We are called to be ministers to the day we are put in the ground. And, and I'm hoping for real clarity from the Lord what's next. Um, so that, that's what we're going to do. So I appreciate your prayers as I'll continue to pray for you the same thing. I told the worship team during our pre-service meeting and prayer time that I'd be done in 35 minutes. I don't think I did it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you specifically for the book of Colossians. And drive the truth of this book so deep into our hearts and minds of who we are, who we used to be and who you've created us to be. And you are renewing us to the image of your son to be fully alive, to live a life that is pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work because your spirit is in us and empowering us as new people in Christ to live that kind of life. Give us a passion to want that more than anything else. Give us specific, Lords, and directions as we live each life in this world, sometimes mundane, sometimes exciting, sometimes sad, sometimes happy, full of joy. But each day, Lord, our commission never stay, stay, um, stops. We are servants of the living God. So 
And Father, specifically this week, Lord, show us what it means to be faithful. Show us what it means to pray for each other's maturity. And, if, and, if, and I wonder why, God, the power of this prayer, that, that Paul prayed it, Epaphras prayed it, it's a prayer you evidently answer. If we pray for each other's maturity, you'll work to that end, Lord. Help us to truly believe that, that our prayers matter. And Lord, to fulfill the ministries you've given us, that sometimes they're burdensome, sometimes they are fun, sometimes, Lord, we don't even want to deal with those people. That's what you've called us to, as members of Christ's body, who have you gifted and empowered to do just that. Father, thank you. I don't want to preach my sermon and my prayer, Lord, but lead us, guide us, fill us with your spirit to live the life that Colossians tells us we have. All of this, Lord, because of your son, Jesus Christ, what he did for us. We can come to you in prayer. Everybody said, amen.